I'm going to take a little break from the series going through the fruit of the Spirit, and instead I want to talk about um, taking responsibility, and I want to say it's good to be responsible. And this is something that I've been growing in my entire adult life, is this gift of taking responsibility and how life works better when we take responsibility, and it is a gift from the Lord to be made in his image as someone who can take responsibility for what's going on in the creation. One of the stories of my young adult life that most told me I had a problem with taking responsibility was when I was going to my second year of university and I had a a flat, which was just one big room essentially that had my bed and my kitchen and my table and everything just in one room. And really early on in my time in this this room, in October, I'd made myself a chicken stir-fry. And then I put the pan that I'd made the chicken in into the bottom of my sink, and it stayed there until I went home for Christmas break in mid-December. Unwashed, uncleaned. I just used every single dish I owned, stacked it up in the kitchen, and then essentially, I would, after I'd used up everything, I would just take the, the top plate and a knife and clean those and make a peanut butter sandwich. And I was essentially just living off of peanut butter sandwiches because that was the easiest thing you could kind of live off of, peanut butter sandwiches and cereal. So I only needed two two dishes and two utensils, a spoon, a plate, a knife, and a bowl. And that's all I needed. But I was just not responsible for the mess I was making. I just left it there. And after I, you know, really realized that I had that chicken glop rotting and I was living with the smell of it. If it smelled, you know, you can get used to a lot. When I went to go clean it and realized it had been in there for over two months, I thought to myself, esto no bueno, like that's not good. And so we've been learning to, to grow in it, taking responsibility. Now, I read a story, and this is, Two reasons why I want to take this break. During the last message, you might remember, I quoted a scripture from Second Timothy where the Apostle Paul in jail says, I suffer all things for the sake of the elect, that they too might share in the glories that are to come, or in the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And I would just took a little while to hit that point that the Apostle Paul in prison, some of his motivation for staying faithful to Jesus was saying, I don't want my response to my sufferings to influence any Christian badly. In fact, I want them to see me suffering well by faith in Jesus and influence them to do better in Christ. And so he and, I, and you say things in a message sometimes that haunt you for the rest of the week. I don't know if you get that hearing messages, but I can tell you, every once in a while I will say things, and sometimes it's not scripted, and then I'll just know that was for me. That was my own like arrow to the heart moment where I'm going to be haunted by a truth of God that I need to hear. And for me it was really that one, this idea of Paul in one sense, politically, economically, physically, not able to do so much, and yet keeping on himself the responsibility of his influence in all of his churches. Even though he would have had a million reasons to have excuses and to quit or fall down or to say, if I have one bad day, you know, people will understand. A million excuse possibilities. He keeps on himself his responsibility to influence the church and faith in Christ. 
Amen? And so I said that, I'm just like, yikes! Like that one, and I have not got that barbed hook out of my heart yet. Navy SEALs. The other thing that happened was I bought a book. You guys know my Navy SEAL things, and I, I semi-apologize, but I'm God's ministering to me through all these stories that I'm reading, and I'm figuring out over time why I like them so much. It's not the shooting people part. I tell you that. I'm okay with, you know, that's okay. That I know there's war. I know there's police. I know bad things happen. But that's not what draws me to it. But I was just reading a book that just showed up in the mail. And it told a story that I want to share with you um, in a shortened version. But just, this is what hit me. And I said, yeah, this is why I like this stuff. So, it's a story from part of the American war in Iraq, and just whatever the politics have turned out to be, if we can put those down for a second. It's one commander's, he was in a city called Ramadi, and Ramadi was the hotspot of terrorists for a while in Iraq. And their job with other people was to get the insurgents out of the city so that the regular citizens could have real lives again. Because one of the factoids about having tons of insurgents in your city was that it wasn't like it was just like the Iraqis against the Americans. You would have in a city full of insurgents, the insurgents fighting against each other because for these, thank you, for these uh, various Muslim groups in the city, they were half the time just as happy to kill other Muslims in the city as they were to fight against the Americans. So it wasn't safe for anybody because you'd have all these factions who would be saying to each other, your type of Islam is not the right kind of Islam, and so if we can destroy your mosque, that's almost as good as destroying the Americans. And so it was just a war-torn city, and the Americans' job was to get the warriors out of the city so that regular people could come and live there again and with the hope of having some kind of stable government arrive or arise in that city. And so there's one commander who was um, working on that overall mission, and a firefight broke out, so people were shooting at each other, and as he came to see what was going on, something didn't click with why people were shooting at certain places and going on. So he says to everybody, stop shooting, cease fire, cease fire. And what it turned out was that it was a friendly friendly fire event, a blue-on-blue event, and what had happened is that somebody had shot and killed somebody on their own team. And as they were figuring it out, there was a group of soldiers that were in one town, or one house, and somebody walked through the door who was an Iraqi on their side. So part of the Iraqi army that was working with the Americans walked through the door of a house, and the people on the inside, the soldiers on the inside, saw this Iraqi with an AK-47, which is typically what the insurgents would be having, this type of gun, walked through the house, so they shot him, because they didn't know he was going to be there. There was a breakdown of communications. One group on the team didn't know that these guys were in that house, and the people in that house didn't know that people were going to be coming into that house, so they shot at him. So everybody that was on the Iraqi person's team started shooting into the house, and the people in the house started shooting outside of the house, and there were some injuries, and there was a fatality. It's a blue-on-blue event, they call it. It's a friendly fire death. Now, that is the worst possible thing that can happen in war, is to shoot one of your own teammates, to kill somebody on your own side. And so this commander's job was to... I think like the next day or maybe two days later to give a presentation what happened, to give a timeline of all the things that contributed to things going that wrong, and to place blame on it. 
Now, can you imagine that that would be a stressful situation to be in? Something you're responsible for, one of your guys killed another one of your guys. And some of your guys shot and injured some others of your guys. Okay, would that be stressful? Would you ever want to be in that place? No, I wouldn't either. Now, to make things even more stressful, that commander's boss with an investigation team has also just flown in to be at that meeting. Because their job is to find out whether or not this guy has done his job with determining what, whose fault it was and who needs to take the blame. And pretty much, they've just flown in to fire this guy. Because these kinds of events are so bad that somebody's head needs to roll. So he's giving this presentation to his own teammates and his bosses there pretty much just to fire him. Give him a dishonorable discharge. You're out of the military. Your reputation is ruined. Everything you've spent your entire life working up to is gone. And to make things even more stressful, the people who got injured in this blue-on-blue event are also in the room wondering what their boss is going to say about why they just had took a bullet. Stressful? Would you want to be in that situation? Would you want to take any responsibility for any of that? Most of us wouldn't. Most of us probably wouldn't even show up to that meeting, let alone be able to prepare for it and present it. And so what happened was, is this individual was working on this presentation to try to place the blame somewhere. And of course, as you can imagine, there'd be so much temptation to want to cover the old derriere, to find the biggest thing as blanket possible and cover your behind. As he was putting it all together and trying to figure out what went wrong, he came to the conclusion that the ultimate person to blame for what happened was himself. That ultimately he's responsible for everything his team does on the field. So if something like this happens, he's ultimately to blame. So that was his attitude going into the meeting. I will take responsibility for this. Now, that was the point of the story told in the book. But something else happened that I noticed that he didn't even say anything about. Was that he, when he went to go and do the presentation and he presented the facts in order of what happened and where there were communication breakdowns and where there were choices that were made and where there were things that didn't happen that should have happened and all this stuff, he started asking people the question, whose fault is this? And you know what happened? The group started saying, well, it's mine. One guy put up his hand, you know what? I didn't check in and tell people where we were. I could have done that a lot sooner. And then somebody else said, and he said, no, you're wrong. Well, then somebody else said, okay, then I think it's my fault and I'm to blame. I didn't do a proper recon of that area. I didn't tell people that this is where we could have a bottleneck. And he said, no, you're wrong. And then there was just a series of people. Everybody, (laughs) people started taking turns trying to take responsibility for what happened. And eventually the commander says, okay, guys, you're all wrong. I'm to blame. And because of this, the people who were there to essentially fire the guy didn't. Because he not only said, I'm to blame, but he said, this is what we're going to do in order to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. We're going to find out everything wrong that happened about this, and we're going to make a plan to make sure this doesn't happen again. And guess what? He, He didn't get fired. In fact, he kept his role and has had a major influence not only in the military but in the world after that. 
But going to the very worst possible thing that could happen in his career, facing it and saying, I'll take responsibility for it. And part of the reason I could be wrong, nobody said this, but if I were part of that team that had come to evaluate this commander's performance and determine blame, if I watched every single person in his team try to take responsibility for what happened, I would say, I will not lose this guy. Because if you can inspire a team of people to be so bought in and so wanting to take responsibility for how the team does, that when the worst possible thing happens in your team, everybody tries to get fired for it, you know you have a good leader. And you know you have a great team. Look, I've been to a lot of church meetings, and I can tell you that there are no church meetings that I can imagine at where if the poo-poo hit the spinning thing and the spatter was on the ceiling, that there is a church that I know of where everybody in the church would want to say, I take responsibility for this crisis. Never experienced anything like that. Maybe some people... Maybe the leaders might, but every single church member, if you have a church crisis and everything's fallen apart and everything's fallen down and everything's in flame and we don't have enough money and we're not growing and there's problems everywhere, that everybody who shows up to the family forum says, you know what, this is my fault. I stopped praying for you guys a long time ago. You know what, this is my fault. I've been bitter and I've been saying things about you guys that I shouldn't have been saying. You know what, this is my fault. I I stopped serving and I didn't even want to do it anymore and... This is my fault. I could have talked to you guys about this stuff and had a good attitude about it, but I just quit a long time ago. No, this is my fault. I stopped giving a while ago because I was worried about my own personal finances, never tried to fix it. I have never heard a story before where everybody took responsibility for something so terrible happening. So this morning I'm here to say... Guys, it's really good to take responsibility. God does. We have a God who takes responsibility. People like to argue about Genesis 1 and how it creates the science or whatever. Great, you can do that. You can spend the rest of your life doing that. This is my take on this thing. The science is going to change. So whatever way you try to marry Genesis 1 to whatever is the contemporary science, 50 years from now, what you have to agree with in order to be up to date in the science is going to change. So this can be a fun exercise, but... It's going to change. You won't be able to come with a definitive answer to how these things wet anymore. So you need to hold these things lightly. Back in Calvin's time, the criticism from the philosophers of the time was not, was, why would God take seven days to do it? Why wouldn't he just do it immediately in one day? And now the current criticism is, why would God do it in such a short time in seven days? He should have taken 16 billion years. So 500 years ago, this is too slow. Currently, it's too fast. And you know what? A hundred years from now, we don't know what the criticism is going to be. We can do our best now, but it's going to change. Guess what? It's going to change. But what we should do is be able to hear what God wants to say to us through this story, how he tells it. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. This is the presentation of creation. God creates the heavens and the earth, and it's a mess. It's a junk heap. It's a trash pile. It's a swamp. It's a garbage dump. And God shows up to fix it. This useless piece of garbage world that is darkness and void. It's tohu, abohu. It's 9-11. It's just a burned down building. God doesn't say, who made this mess? I'm out of here. He says, I am going to fix this. My spirit's going to hover over this thing. And by the time I'm done, I'm going to make it beautiful in form. I'm going to remove the water that's not good for my land creatures. I'm going to make space for the fish. I'm going to make space for the birds. I'm going to make space for the people. And then I'm going to fill this thing up full of life and I'm going to bless its socks off and fill it full of unstoppable life. But what we see is God coming upon a mess and saying, I can take responsibility for this. I'm not just going to let this mess stay a mess and I'm not just going to stand here complaining. Jesus, did you do this? Which one of the angels made this mess pile? Because I've got this fiery place that's pretty empty right now. And I want to fill that thing. No. Look at this mess. I can fix this. I can make it way better than it was before. I can extend my power, my energy, my creativity, and my love to make this place awesome. We're, we're created, we're introduced to the creator of the universe as somebody who has come to take responsibility for problems. And when he's done creating everything, what he does is he invests that responsibility into people. Verse 27 following. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves. And he goes on from there. But this is the first thing when he makes his people. The first thing we learn about them is that they have different genitalia. Amen. That's what male and female in the, the, the Hebrew actually emphasizes. Not like man and woman, how they relate to each other differently, but that they have different bits when they go into the shower. That's the first thing we learn about them. And the next thing we learn about them is that they're supposed to take responsibility for this place God just made. Everywhere you go, take dominion and make it better. The fish, make it better. The birds, make it better. The animals, make it better. Those bits I gave you, join them together to make more people so that they can make this place better. Take responsibility. I've taken responsibility for the universe, and now I invest that responsibility into you, and your job is to take responsibility too. Did they do a good job with that? Not so much. And so all the catastrophe that we call normal life is in effect. The fall of man happens as as man and woman reject being responsible to God. They reject their God-given mission. They reject their God-given identity. They want to be gods themselves, imagining that somehow being a God means you don't have to take responsibility for things, but get to do whatever you want. Amen? Guess what God does not do? Just whatever he wants. All of his goodness comes to us through responsibility and wanting to make things better. But they rejected that, and they invited death into the world and destruction. Now everything we touch is semi-broken and cursed. Until God sends Jesus. 
And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And Isaiah prophesies about him to, as the man who would come to take ultimate responsibility for humanity. I'm going to read from Isaiah verses 53. And I want you to listen for how much responsibility Jesus takes for people. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's about taking responsibility. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded. Why? Because he was messing around in life? No. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Why? Because he was busy taking responsibility for fallen man. He didn't have time to complain. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He did not suffer one second for anything that he did. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And there's this movement from Jesus taking responsibility for sin and sinners to suffer for sinners because of sin, even though he didn't have to, but wanting to take responsibility for us. There's this movement from responsibility to reward. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquity. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And so Jesus, when he comes to us, if you want to tell somebody about Jesus, this is the thing you should tell them. Jesus will take responsibility for you. Everything you've done wrong, Jesus will take responsibility for it. Everything you ever need, Jesus will take responsibility for it. Your past, your present, your future, Jesus will take responsibility for it. He will think about you, care about you, stay awake for you. He'll use his power for you, his wealth for you, his knowledge for you, his wisdom for you. He will say, you are mine and I will spend the rest of eternity taking care of you. He is the responsible man. And he is God taking responsibility for us. And this is our hope. Amen? This is our hope that we cannot find ourselves in a situation where we will be forsaken or abandoned because we turn to the one who wants to take complete responsibility for all things. The price was just he had to be tortured to death and treated as pure sin by the holy God on the cross. But he said yes to that so that he can say yes to us. Amen? So, Christian, our God is the God who takes responsibility for things. Even things that are never even close to his fault. Let's be like him. Who do I, where do I, where's the, which camera is the one? I think, does it glow blue? 
the one I'm supposed to weigh that? No? Okay, I'm, I'm lost here. Guys, the heroes of the faith take responsibility. I think about Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, the most righteous man of his generation, far and away, the most faithful man, the most honorable man, in chapter 9 goes to God in prayer, and he wants to see Jerusalem restored, so he gets before God, and I won't read it, but you can read it, and he kneels before God and says, God, forgive us. We're sinners. We're dishonorable. We've betrayed you. We've sought out idols. Forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us. Restore us according to your word for all the evil we've done. We've got nothing to offer you, but just we would you forgive us? And he's pleading for the restoration of Jerusalem. Now, see the picture. The most righteous man ever in prayer, taking responsibility for all the sins of these people who aren't righteous with the hope that God will come and forgive these people and bring them home according to his word. I think about righteous Job. You remember Job, the most righteous man of his generation, the very beginning of Job, talking about how in God's own sight, God says there is nobody like like Job in righteousness. And the story that the Bible tells us in the beginning of Job to prove that Job is so righteous, you know what Job is doing? Every time his grown kids have a party, he goes and he makes sacrifice to God saying, maybe in their hearts they have cursed you or done something unrighteous. And so God, I take responsibility for the potential of their sin in sacrifice and pray that you would forgive them acting like a high priest over his family. Even though they're grown kids having a party somewhere else, he wants to be responsible for their relationship with God by prayer. Not by nagging, but by prayer. So when God wants to show us a righteous man, he shows us Job taking responsibility. I think about Joseph, the most wronged man in the Old Testament in some senses. Told by God, you're going to be the ruler over your family completely betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery with the hope that he'd be murdered along the way. Why? So that Joseph could take a ton of responsibility, sitting in prison until the day when God takes him into Pharaoh's court and interprets his dreams. And then Pharaoh says, you sound smarter than anybody else in my kingdom. I'm going to make you responsible for feeding my kingdom through a famine. Amen? Why? So that one day the famine will drive these murderous, betraying brothers into Joseph's throne room so that Joseph can feed them and be responsible for them and take them to come and live with him. Joseph is a responsible man. He wants to save people with his wisdom through a famine. Even though the brothers he's saving, he knows how evil they are. And he's planned to save them before they ever ask for forgiveness. Because his soul, through walking with God, is oriented towards being responsible like God. I think about Esther. Queen Esther. Any, anybody worry that the young gals, when they think about princesses and queens, they just think it means like dressing up all the time and being able to afford the fancy things? No! It's about photo ops and, well, responsibility. Amen? Queen Esther, taken to be the queen of a pagan king, and it was not a romantic love story. He had tons, literally, of wives weighed up on the scale, whether you use pounds or kilograms. He had tons of concubines. 
And she's made queen, not so that her life can be super easy, but so that when Haman comes to try to commit genocide against the Jews, she can risk her life by going to the king's throne room and take responsibility for their salvation, even though she knows the chances of success are small and this will probably get me killed. But her family member, Mordecai, says, the only, probably the only reason you're here right now is so that you can take responsibility for the salvation of your people. Amen? So, our heroes are people who take responsibility for the welfare of their families, for the welfare of the people of God, who stand before God and pray for grace and pray for rescue and pray for favor. Now, why don't we like to take responsibility? Two big reasons. All I need to do is is, uh, search my own shriveled up Grinch heart (laughs) to know why. Two big reasons we don't love responsibility. Number one, fear. Right? Fear of failure, fear of blame, fear of losing it, fear of exposure, fear of ridicule, fear of attack, fear of accusation. It's fear and pride. Big old ego. I don't want to take responsibility for that because that would mean admitting a failure and that leaves me exposed to shame and blame and guilt and all this stuff. Getting fired, getting killed, all these things. Maybe you've got your own reasons for not wanting to take responsibility, but these are the big ones. Like I just Plus it's work. Maybe number three would be it's work. Taking responsibility is work. Do you guys ever see that in your hearts? I totally see it in my hearts. I hate my fear. I hate my pride. It has done me no good. 40 years old. Never done me any good. What are the things we do instead? Well, when Adam and Eve first ate that fruit in the garden and God showed up and gave them this opportunity to take responsibility for what they'd done. Hey, hey guys, there's, a, there's an apple missing on the tree. Uh, I notice you're hiding in the bushes there. Uh, something happened? Got this moment, this opportunity for responsibility. What would have happened? You wonder, right? Your brain can go, what if they'd come and bow down and said, we're so sorry, we've really sinned against you, we deserve to die, and we wouldn't mind. That, that would just be fair. And they just came and took responsibility. What would happen? You wonder. But they didn't. What did they do? First, it's the excuses. Then it's the blame. Adam even ends up blaming God. The woman that you gave me, she talked me into this. You gave me one of these dud women's. Even though I ordered her online from Russia, it's one of these dud women's. You know, three verses ago, he's like, this is the best thing ever. Yeah, I'll take responsibility for her when it seems like it's going to be fun. Not in the midst of the problems. So one of the best things a Christian can do is become very sensitive when to, to when their soul is making excuses and starting to blame people. Because you can almost guarantee that those things will lead you away from the blessing that will come from taking responsibility for something. I've got to try to keep moving here. 
So what can we do? Number one, I, I, think, I think all of us can bless ourselves by helping ourselves have faith that if we come to take responsibility before God, good things will happen. Right? Our unbelief is, if I take responsibility for this, then it's going to be a total disaster. Right? I'm going to fail. It's going to blow up. It's going to be a horrible thing. Instead, why don't we actually believe that God is a God who wants to take responsibility for us, even our responsibilities, and then if we come to him, that he will do something good. So let's own our responsibilities. What are your responsibilities? You have a responsibility for yourself, right? For your own soul. I know you do, for your own character growth, because... because Peter tells us that we've got some responsibilities there. This is what he says at the beginning of his book, the second one. Chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with godliness. Sorry, with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind, has forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. So here's Peter talking to us and he's saying, Christians, you're responsible for your growth. Make every effort to grow in this way and that way and this way and that way and this way and that way. And if you're not growing in this, I can tell you what the promise is. You have unbelief in how cleansed you are in Christ. You've forgotten what God's done for you. You don't know him anymore. I'm not saying you're not saved or whatever. But Peter's saying, hey, if you knew God, you would want to grow in this stuff and you would. And by the way, it's your responsibility. Anybody ever find that you can't make somebody change? Anybody ever find that when someone is zealous to change, they kind of start doing that? This is one of the biggest things that I think holds us back is having unbelief about God's desire to see us transformed as we take responsibility for how we're really doing. Thought number two. Whenever you have a responsibility, make sure in prayer and by faith, you're keeping it also God's responsibility. This is one of the tricks about talking about responsibility. You know, if you're talking in the unbelieving world, people can say, take responsibility, end of story. But as Christians, we want to keep giving back to God all of our responsibilities so that he's taking responsibility for what we've received as a responsibility. Amen? Does that make sense? Because we don't ever want to do something in our own strength. We want to acknowledge that God's given us these things to be taken care of and to stewarding. And then we also want to say, help me take care of and steward all this stuff. And so Peter, this is his previous letter, not the one I just read. In chapter 5, which is mostly his chapter about people taking responsibility in the church. 
He says to people that he's just called to humble themselves under the eldership team and clothe themselves in humility under church responsibility takers. He says to them in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Amen? So what's the problem with responsibilities? It's frightening. It's anxiety-producing. You're worried that it's not going to turn out. You're worried about having to take care of things. And so he says, yeah, I know. So you know what you do with all those worries about your responsibilities? You throw them back up into heaven through prayer and praise and thanksgiving and study and worship and taking care of your heart. You give them back to God and you're just always in this loop of, I receive these responsibilities that you've given me. This looks like a pretty big monster ball to eat. I'm going to give you back all the concerns about getting these responsibilities done. Now give me the grace and give me the leading and give me the power and give me the team to get all this stuff done, all the people and all the provision that's needed to do what you've given me to do. Thank you. Give it back to me. And while we're walking, I give you all the glory. I give you all the praise and I give you all the problems back to you in prayer. Amen. So receive our responsibilities for God and then continue to always make them God's responsibility in our hearts. Number three, I think we're at. Uh, Care about things that aren't your responsibilities, but are your responsibility to influence. Okay, this is what I mean. Um, People can really psych themselves out and stress themselves out by trying to emotionally be responsible for for things they aren't actually responsible for. Amen? Like government choices. One thing we've all learned... They're going to do what they're going to do. Amen? And we can't control it. But we're responsible for our influences based on what they do. Whether it's influencing them through our respectfully worded emails, or influencing our province by how we conduct ourselves. We're responsible for our influences. So let's give, let me give you a for instance here. From Peter again. Peter's really good. First Peter, second Peter, just get in there. Talking about marriages. Can you imagine that in the first century, some Christian marriages or some half-Christian marriages were very challenging for people who believed in Jesus? The wife became a believer and the husband didn't, which is very common. Augustine's family was like that. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on one of gold jewelry and clothing to wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight is very precious. So you're imagining here the situation where you've got this woman who believes in God and this guy who, whether he says he does or doesn't, is not acting like it. She can't control his decisions. True? But she is responsible for her influence. True? And so God says to her, you're responsible for your influence on your husband you can make him more likely or less likely to believe in Jesus. And I've struggled with this one because, you know, I've been in some situations where I've literally counseled a woman before just to, like, stop, stop being involved with her husband because he was doing some not good stuff. 
And I'm just like, you should put the brakes on there. It's really bad. And her response to me was, well, I'm still his wife, so I've got to do what my conscience says. And I was really impacted by that. And I see that here where it's kind of like she can't control him, but she, has an, she is responsible to God for her influence towards him. And this is a huge one for us because we often are very angry at what we can't control. Amen? And we often let ourselves free of our own responsibility to serve the Lord when we're in a situation with something we can't control, that we wish were different. I can't change the situation. I don't, I don't need to be responsible for my own heart. Fishes take down, elbow drop from the third rope, choke out pound until the referee makes me stop MMA. And what what he's saying here is, yeah, even in situations where you aren't directly responsible, you're responsible for your influence on the situation. And this is a huge one, I think, for church members. Maybe I'll just come a little bit closer here. There are so many situations in the church where people are not directly responsible for stuff. People aren't ministry heads. People aren't elders. People aren't leaders. People aren't all kinds of official responsible roles. And yet we're always responsible for how we influence the church. We're always responsible for our influence on other believers or on these ministries or even on our leaders. We're always responsible for how we make things better or worse with our behavior and our actions, our faith, our unbelief. Even, so even when we're not in control, we're responsible for our influence. And that just brings me back to that picture of those, those Navy SEALs back in Iraq and everybody saying, Hey, I could have done things way better to make this situation not happen. Even people who weren't directly responsible and could have just kept their mouths shut because they know the guy who fires everybody is sitting right there. The guy who ruins careers is right there. They could have all just... In the whole room, I could have done it differently. I could have done it differently. I could have done it differently. I could have done better. 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 And just like, man, imagine all of us, everybody who calls on Jesus saying, not blame, 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 but hey, I could have done better. I could have done better. I could have prayed more. I could have given more. I could have thought different. I could have said different. I believe the future of Canada belongs to the people who will take responsibility for the future of Canada. It's a very small group of people, and they're not really good people right now. There's a ton of blame. I, I can change for the good of my country. I, I can change for the good of my city. I can change. I can do better. And finally, just to wrap up, and the team can start coming up here, uh, don't give up. When you want to take responsibility for something, you're going to need to look yourself in the mirror and say, don't give up, sister, or don't give up, man. Because for, for most of us, taking responsibility for things is one of the most painful things we can do. It exposes us. It points out weaknesses. It makes us feel like junk. It's very costly. So don't give up. Anybody ever wanted to quit? Somebody? Just me? Yeah? Anybody want to quit in the last year on something or someone? Don't, don't give up. 
We have a God who wants to reward people who take humble responsibility. Because Jesus took responsibility for the world, God made him the king over the universe. And it's the same Father that wants to reward us for doing the same thing too. So Father, would you bless us? God, I pray that you would touch every family right now. Lord, somebody who could use an encouragement, why don't you take responsibility for it? It doesn't mean you have to be in control, but you can be like Job and say, I want to take responsibility in prayer. I'm going to pray until things change. Maybe sometimes it does mean owning up where um, character and failures in my life have not blessed people. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to be the one who grows fastest and grows farthest. Lord, you know I'm so slow to go there, but I want to go there. Lord, let me be the one who changes most at Calvary Chapel. Lord, let me be the one who humbles himself most and takes on the most personal responsibility and, and, and let me give other people some stiff competition. And God, I pray that you would bless us. Would you encourage us, Lord Jesus? Jesus, where people need an attaboy. Lord, thank you for again for that testimony. Somebody saying, it's been a year. I acknowledged a problem. I walked in the light. I accepted counsel. I took responsibility before you in a problem I had. It's been a year of freedom. God, thank you that we can all have hope that one day we will rejoice that things are different because of your power and your faithfulness and your life at work in us. Lord, as we've been preaching about the Holy Spirit for so long, I pray even now that the kindness of the Holy Spirit would open up eyes and hearts to see where we can influence for better. And where we can maybe take on a bit more responsibility for change. Maybe not be in control, but say, I could do things better with the hope that it makes things better. And Father, I just pray for me. I, I pray you totally liberate me from my excuse making, my blaming. Lord, help me to be like Jesus and help all of us to grow in this. For your glory. Amen.